Now, as we enter a new year, it is the perfect time for us to think about what is most important. I know you've probably done that, even if you don't do the whole New Year's resolution thing. I know you saw the calendar flip over, and you're like, hey, it's the first Sunday of the year. We really need to be at church. I mean, here you are. So congratulations. Well done. Uh, you probably got other things, too, maybe some health-related goals that you'd like to achieve, maybe some financial things, career things. I don't know what you've got. Uh, we've definitely got things like that at CBC. Uh, our ministry teams have been talking all fall about what we feel God is calling us to do. And I'm really excited about our Spanish ministry, about changes and improvements coming with our Wednesday night kids ministry, um, the things we're doing behind the scenes on our bylaws and facilities. Man, I am so excited about 2023. And I set my family down the other night. And I said, Mills team, let's get in here real close. Just want you to know, amen. I've been praying that God would send somebody who'd say amen in my sermons. And God has sent that man in Orlando. So keep it up, buddy. Amen. And I told him, I said, okay, Knox, Mary, Joe, Aaron, this is the year. This is going to be the greatest year in our family's life. And I believe that. I believe it's going to be the greatest year in our church. I think it's going to be the greatest year in your life. Why wouldn't it be? But I can tell you that none of that, none of the blessing, none of the accomplishments that we hope to achieve will happen if prayer is not in its rightful place. If prayer is not the priority in your life and in my life and in my family and in your family and in our church, none of the things we've put on paper have any hope of being fulfilled. And so this morning I want to show you why that if we want to experience God's blessing in our lives in church in 2023, we must make prayer our priority. That's what Paul teaches us here from 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy happens to be like my favorite book in the whole Bible, and I'm going to preach through it next January. We're going to start in 1 Timothy 1, and we're going to work all our way through, hopefully be done by the summer of 2024. But I love it so much because of how practical it is for our life as a church. Um, Paul wrote this letter to his protege Timothy, whom he left in Ephesus, a city that Paul loved and with a church of people that he loved. Paul had gone on into Macedonia to do some work, but he left Timothy there to finish the job. And there was a lot of work to be done. The church had experienced the rise of false teachers who were leading God's people astray, confusing them about their faith in Jesus and what it really meant to follow him. And Paul sent Timothy to get them back on track, to counteract the false teachers, to reestablish the church in truth, and to set them an example of what a faithful Christian life would look like. And so all through the letter, Paul gives Timothy specific instructions, meeting each point of need. Uh, I recently heard a pastor preach on this passage, and he called it God's blueprint for building a church. In chapter 3, Paul will talk about this. He'll say that the church is the household of God, the pillar and buttress of truth. And so you need the blueprints. How, how are you going to put this house together, and how are you going to make it all work? Paul talks about the qualifications for leaders. Who are the overseers or pastors going to be? And what should you look for when you're picking those men? Who are the deacons going to be? What sort of issues do we need to face and how would Jesus handle them? Like financial issues and what to do when a woman's husband passes away. And all kinds of really practical things. I love those things. Dig in the weeds on 1 Timothy 3, 4, 5, and 6. But when Paul got ready to talk about 
the things Timothy needed to do to get the church in Ephesus back on track, he said, first of all, first of all, I urge entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made. I mean, Paul says, of all the important things that you need to do, Timothy, to get this church on track and to help them be the kind of place God's going to bless, first of all, pray. And that seems foreign to us. seems foreign to me. They don't, you know, I didn't take any classes on prayer in seminary. I took a class called Biblical Spirituality. We talked about prayer, but they didn't teach me to pray. Nobody set me down and said, hey, Brad, there's going to be lots of challenges you face as a pastor. There are going to be lots of heartaches that come along with this task. And unless you've sunk your roots deep into God through prayer, you're sunk. Nobody told me that. And so I've had to learn it through the school of hard knocks. I've had to learn it through experience. And so don't do what I did. Listen to what God wants to say to you about the place of prayer in your life. Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer. How would it not be? And so let's see what Paul says, that prayer must be the priority in our church. And here are three reasons why. Number one, because prayer expresses dependence on God. Prayer must be a priority because prayer expresses dependence on God. We see that right here in verses 1 and 2, and we'll get into it in a second. Let's read it again. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now, I'm telling you, prayer is important because it expresses our dependence on God, and we know that from this passage by the prayers we pray. Okay, Paul gives us these four words, entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings. Okay, these four words are basically synonyms. They, they all are talking about communication to God for things. But they are things we need. Entreaties is a translation of a Greek word that means an urgent request to meet a need. Prayers is a more general word used throughout the scripture of a person bowing their head and lifting up requests to God. Petitions is a word that was used in the ancient world to describe a request put before a high official. But in the New Testament, it speaks of intercessory prayer. Prayers that we pray to God on behalf of other people, like we did earlier for the Gordells and for the Clarks and for the Clements. Intercession on behalf of someone else. You go before God bringing their needs. And then thanksgivings. I mean, what is thanksgiving but a recognition that everything we have in life is a gift from God, and therefore He deserves our gratitude. Thank you for what you've given me. I mean, each one of those words expresses dependence on God. We are needy, and God's got what we need. Prayer is an expression of our helplessness, our dependence on God. Every prayer we pray is an expression of dependence. It's not just the prayers we pray, it's the people we pray for. See that in the second half of verse 1 and into verse 2. Paul says we should pray for all people. All people. And then he clarifies what he means. For kings and those who are in authority. Now, the first Christians lived in a world very different than ours. And they lived in a pluralistic culture where they were the minority. And because of that, they often faced 
severe pressure from their surrounding culture, and even at times, intense persecution. Maybe even some of the people in Ephesus had, had experienced that persecution firsthand. Oftentimes this happened uh, because of their neighbors. You know, just a crowd of rowdy people would get together and cause a riot. But other times it would actually be government officials in the city who led the charge. At other times, the Caesars themselves enacted um, official state-sanctioned persecution where they rounded up Christians and threw them to the lions or dipped them in oil and burned them as candles in the garden. Like, that was real. And so when Paul tells Timothy to pray for everybody, and then he clarifies it, it's almost like he's saying, hey, pray for everybody, even those people y'all don't like. Even the people who are making your life miserable. Even the people who put their thumb on you and tell you you're worthless and nothing. Make your life miserable. Take away your families and your jobs. Pray for them too. Is it hard to pray for people you hate? Oh, man. Come on. Amen. That would have been a good time for it. It's hard to pray for people you hate. But it's hard to hate people you pray for. And Paul said you ought to pray for everybody. All men, kings and those who are in authority. In doing so, you're asking God to act on the most powerful people you can imagine. I mean, in the ancient world, Caesar, whether it was Nero or Augustus, didn't matter. The most powerful person you could imagine. The most powerful world leader that had ever been. And yet, the Bible teaches us that there's no authority except that which comes from God. And therefore, those who are in authority are established by God. And Proverbs 21 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. So when you pray for all people, you're expressing dependence on God. Hey, God, we, we believe that you're bigger than Caesar. We believe you're bigger than our local city council. And we believe that because you're bigger and greater, you can act in our circumstances in ways that we would think impossible. So God, save the Caesar. God, bring him people around him who are going to share the gospel. Bring him to a light of the knowledge of the truth. If you can't save him, God, at least give him wisdom. Save him from bad decisions. God, make it so that he rules our nation in a way that increases tranquility and peace. Right? That's what Paul says. We pray for all people, and the purpose of our praying is clear in the second half of verse 2. We, set, we pray so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. See, because God is bigger than the world leaders, he's able to accomplish more in our world than they are. He can bring about a society of calm, tranquility, social peace. Do you believe that? That God could do it in America today? And we know that no human leader can. And so in prayer, we express our dependence on God. God, look, our government leaders don't know what they're doing. But you are wise, you are sovereign, you're the king of all kings. Would you please work in our world to make our social conditions such that we can pursue our faith in freedom and prosperity so that we can be the godly people you want us to be? That is the expression of dependence that Paul is calling Timothy to pursue in prayer. I mean, the whole condition that the church existed in in Ephesus was ultimately determined by God. And so they needed to, first of all, pray that God would bless. You know, when prayer isn't in its rightful place in the church, all kind of crazy things happen. You, you think about if prayer is an expression of dependence, then prayerlessness is an expression of our independence. 
And churches and people find themselves in this situation all the time. I was trying to think of a story that would help me communicate this to you, and I thought it'd be interesting to tell you about my life before I was a pastor. And so all through high school and college, I worked in a warehouse at a swimming pool supply store in Mobile, Alabama. And I, the guy who owned the place went to our church, and my mom hooked me up and got me a job. And so I drove a forklift around at Pioneer Pools for several years, getting into all kinds of trouble and messes. And one day, it was a Saturday, about this time of year in Mobile, Alabama, when every redneck's pool had turned green and been <laughs> shut down, that my boss was looking for something to make me do so that he didn't just have me sitting around making money for no reason. So in our warehouse, we had these 20-foot-tall pallet racks, and he was all the time having me take stuff off the racks and put them back on in different and novel ways. And so this day, he wanted me to reorganize our vinyl liners on the pallet rack. And so, of course, you know, maybe 18, 19 years old at the time, really don't care for any authority. I pitter around in the warehouse all day, and finally, about 5 o'clock, I decide I better get something done. And so I'm hurrying on this forklift and got a pallet of vinyl liners up 15 feet in the air, and I clip the upright of one of these pallet racks. And before I realized the, the massive mistake I had made, the rack started to lean. Okay, yes, thank you. It was that epic, okay? So I put the forks down real quick, hop off, and go up under this rack, and I lift my arms up and brace myself against this giant rack, okay? I'm incredibly strong, okay? So it didn't fall, thankfully, but then I was in this crazy predicament. I could either stand there hoping that I rescued the situation without my boss chewing me out, or I could scream at the top of my lungs for help. And so I screamed, help me, help, help. They came running out, and they're laughing at me, and, you know, situation diverted, and now it's a great laugh for us. But, you know, lots of churches operate that way with God. Lots of families do. Lots of people do. We find ourselves in situations as a result of our own foolishness and independence from God, and we are straining every bit of our strength to try to hold up the collapsing mess because we're so prideful and independent. What he wants us to do is cry out, top of our lungs, help me, God. I have an urgent request. I got situations in my life that are falling apart, and unless you show up, I'm sunk. See, when prayer is the priority in our churches and lives, we'll be honest about our dependency on God. We'll take the New Year's resolutions that we've so neatly identified on our piece of paper, and we'll say, Lord, without you, these are hopes and wishes. I need you to come through and help me. A person who's dependent on God in prayer like this says, God, I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better dad. I want to be a better mom or wife. I want to be a better friend. But if I'm relying on my resources, what I can do, my strength, I am doomed to failure. God, I need you to come through for me. Churches that say, God, we are failing to reach our city. We're failing to reach our nation with the gospel. We're brokenhearted to see lost people around us die and go to hell. Unless you breathe by your Holy Spirit into our midst, we are doomed. God, we are completely dependent on you. So listen, we can't be the church. You can't be the person you want to be this year in 2023 
unless you prioritize prayer and express your dependence on God. Okay? That's number one. Number two, second reason prayer must be a priority. Prayer aligns our desires with God's desires. And Paul gives us the explanation for why we should pray for all people in verses 3 to 7. He tells us just simply, verse 3, it's good and acceptable when we pray for all people because God is our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I mean, Paul knew because he had enemies. He knew how easy it was to get closed-minded, narrow-minded in your prayer life, like that guy who prayed, Dear God, bless me and my wife, my son John and his wife, and us four and no more. Right? That, people are like that. We, we do that from time to time. But Paul wanted the people in Ephesus to remember that, hey, despite the pressure you feel from people out there, they're not your enemies. They are men and women created by God for friendship and fellowship with Him. And His desire, the, the deepest desire of God's heart, I really want you to listen to this. The deepest desire of God's heart is that people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. All people. That's what God wants. If you, if you could sit down with Him and say, God, what do you really want from my life? It would be an outworking of this deep desire. The desire that, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, the desire that compelled Him to send His own Son, Jesus, to earth. That's what God wants more than anything. And so it's right for us to join him, to align our desires with his in prayer, to pray what God wants us to pray, to pray what God wants. He wants to save all people. And you think about what that means. He wants to save Caesar, and he wants to save the peasant out on the street. He wants to save the people in the seats of power in Austin and in Washington. And he wants to save the forgotten person who doesn't have any papers, who came over here illegally and has no rights. He wants to save them. He wants to save American people. He wants to save Mexican people, Honduran people, Salvadoran people, African people. He wants to save everybody. There is no segment of the world population or corner of the globe that God doesn't look at and see people there and say, I want these people to know me. That's what God wants. And so when Paul says to pray for all people, even kings and those in authority, he's saying align your desires with God. Pray for what God wants. And the Bible is clear. I mean, surely the people of God should know this. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and His mercies are over all His works. He told Ezekiel, listen, I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people, but I'd rather that the wicked turn from their way and live. Peter says, hey, listen, God is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's why Jesus could say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's the heart of God. God's desire is not that every wicked person would go to hell. His desire is that every wicked person would come to be saved and see Jesus for who he is, the one who reconciles people to God. After all, I mean, just the way God created the universe points to this. Paul says, he gives us four proofs here that God really does want to save everybody. He says, number one, there's one God. I mean, think about that. We, we, are, we live in a pluralistic society. We're taught to respect other people's cultures. And so we know that, hey, if you're from India, you're likely raised a Hindu. And so you've got all kinds of gods. 
If you're born in Arabia or other places in the Middle East, you know about the god Allah. If you're born on an island somewhere, you've got your own god. Every culture has got their god, right? A god for them and a god for them and a god for them. Paul says that's not the way it works. There's really only one god. So how could other people not worship him? There's one god, so all people should worship the one god. More than that, there's one mediator. That means there's one go-between, God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. The Son of God who left heaven, took on flesh to bring us back to God. Jesus told his disciples, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So of course it's right for us to pray for all people. There's only one God, and so we want all people to know the one God. And there's only one way to that God through the mediator, Jesus. And then Paul says, Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. That's the third proof. That means that Jesus left his place in heaven, took on human flesh, lived a sinless life, and died on the cross so that all people could come to God. Anybody who trusts in Jesus can have their sins forgiven. Apart from Jesus, there's no hope of salvation. There's no other name given among men under heaven by which we may be saved. Jesus. There's one mediator and one ransom for all. There's no reconciliation to God found outside of Christ. And then the fourth proof is that God sent Paul out as teacher of the Gentiles. So God didn't just pursue the Jewish people. He's pursuing all people. And Paul himself was living proof that God wants all people to come to faith. He sent people around the world to every nation of the earth so they could hear the gospel of Jesus. And so because of that, prayers that please God are those that align with his desires. God has no interest in blessing your prayers if you're praying for stuff that God doesn't want. He has no interest in blessing a church that wants what God doesn't want. No interest in that whatsoever. It's impossible for God to bless sin. But Jesus said to his disciples, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Jesus' disciple John said, this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we pray anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, we know that we have whatever we have asked from him. And God has given you a blank check. Pray whatever you want. And when it aligns with God's desire for the world, you can expect God to answer. I wonder what would happen if you took God at his word. What if you took the blank check he gave you, wrote out whatever crazy desire, and handed it back to him? What, What check would he cash for you? I mean, you think about it. Look through the history of the church. Look through the church in the New Testament. Think about all the crazy, audacious, radical prayers people prayed. You find example after example after example. Think about the man Charles Finney, who was a preacher in the 19th century and a leader of what many people call the Second Great Awakening. Finney was the man who invented the altar call. So you bow your head, close your eyes, and walk down the aisle and respond to Jesus. Uh, had revival meetings all over the world and paved the way for men like Billy Sunday and Billy Graham. Everybody thought Finney's success and the thousands of people who came to Christ through his ministry was because of his powerful preaching, because of his new techniques, his novel methods that he introduced into church meetings. But Leonard Ravenhill, man I've learned a lot from on prayer, 
told this story about this woman he met in Bolton, England, when he was interning with an older pastor. Had gone to this lady's house, and they were talking to her, and she told them this story about when Finney came to Bolton. He set up shop for two weeks to preach these public evangelistic meetings. And at the same time he arrived, two men started going down the street door to door, knocking and looking for a room to rent. The two men's names were Father Nash and Father Clary. And this lady that Leonard Ravenhill met had opened her door to Father Clary and Father Nash, and they'd asked if they could rent a room from her. She said, I don't have a room. She thought they like, wanted to stay there. And after getting into it, she realizes they just need a room to meet in. And so she said, well, I've got a root cellar. You're welcome to meet there. And so for two weeks, Father Clary and Father Nash met together in the lady's damp root cellar, praying while Finney was having his public evangelistic meetings. And everywhere that he went, people thought, man, Finney's the greatest preacher to ever lived, greatest preacher since Jesus. It was behind the scenes people beating down the doors of heaven for the lost people that were going to be present that night. And God heard those prayers, and the people were saved. That's what God wants. That's God's desire. How many churches close their doors because they're not praying what God wants? They're praying what they want. God, grow our membership. Lord, help us break 200 Lord, help us meet budget this year. Help us renovate our facility. Help us have influence in our community. God doesn't care about our influence. He cares about the influence of Jesus. And Jesus will be glorified whether we're in on it or not. He wants us to pray what He wants. How many families are languishing? I mean, how many families are spinning their wheels, not making it in life? Because they're not praying the right prayers. They're not seeking what God is seeking. They're not saying, Lord, your will be done in my family as it is in heaven. How many people are stuck in misery because they're pursuing everything but Jesus? Listen, I think that in 2023, it is God's invitation to us to come to him open-handed and say, Lord, I don't know anymore. I want whatever you want for me. Not my will. Your will be done in me. Align my desires with yours. I guarantee you, you go to God like that, you can't enter into a true spirit of prayer and not begin to pray for what God wants in your life. He'll show you. He'll lead you. So number two, we should pray, make it a priority because it aligns our desires with God. But lastly, we need to pray because it unites our hearts for God. And that's what Paul says in verse 8. Look with me one more time. He says, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Now, this is Paul's final summary statement on prayer. And he doesn't talk about prayer again in the book. And the therefore, whenever you see the therefore in the Bible, you know you're supposed to ask what it's there for. And so the therefore is there to help us understand that this is the conclusion of Paul's summary. So everything that he said about prayer lands on this point. Therefore, I urge the men in every place to pray. I want to focus on men. If you're a man, 
You know it. So listen up. Why the focus on men? Well, it's not because women can't pray. It's not because women shouldn't pray. In fact, I think more women should pray. If every woman prayed like the women in my life prayed, I'm telling you, the world would be different. I can't think about prayer without thinking about my grandma Lucille, who's a prayer warrior. About my Mimi Joan, who watches our Facebook live stream every week. Always tells me how great my sermon is. She's watching right now. Hey, Mimi. Can't tell you how many times she's prayed for me. My mom, my aunt, my wife. Thank God for praying women. But Paul says men pray. Why is that? I think it's because men are created by God to be the spiritual leaders in the church and in their home. And so when Paul's talking about prayer, he can't help but get to the men. All right, guys. It's on you. The church is going to pray It's going to be because you set the pace. I mean, Paul envisioned the men of the church standing at the front, not sitting on the back row, not tucked away in the corner. He imagined them at the front, setting the pace for prayer and making a scene, really. I mean, think about what he says. Therefore, I wish that in every place men would pray, standing, lifting up holy hands, not hands in the pocket. That's a man. This is a man move. Stand around the barbecue pit, hands in your pocket, crossed. It's another one. Occasionally, you know, doing this number. Uh, He said, standing, lifting holy hands. I want you to think about the significance of this posture. When's the last time you lifted your hands? Some of us can't do it. I got poor shoulder mobility. I'm reminded every Monday when I try to squat under a barbell. Standing, lifting holy hands. We, we think of hands up, right? Put your hands up. It's a sign of surrender. You've laid your weapons down. Ancient world, posture of prayer was arms bent. Hands open to receive from God. Paul says, I want the men to stand, lifting holy hands, surrendered, consecrated. When I'm yours, maybe even, what do you think, reaching out. God, I want more of you, more of you. Not lifting man hands. Not lifting weathered, worn hands. Lifting holy hands. Psalm 24, who may ascend the hill of the Lord and who may stand in your holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. The one who hasn't lifted up his heart to idols. The one who seeks your face. God of Jacob. I want the man to stand. Lifting holy hands, surrendered, consecrated, reaching out, crying for more, God, more of you. We're desperate for you. We want what you want. We want you. That God would rend the heavens and come down. That men 
would want him more than anything else. Do you feel the Spirit at work in this moment? You know, oh man, what God has desired from you. You know it in your heart. Has it ever been attempted? Has a church ever been so defined by spiritual men hungry for God that they didn't care what people thought? They'd be willing to stand in the front, causing a scene, hands lifted high because they are desperate for God. Has it ever been tried in a family? What the dad wants more than anything is that his children would know the Lord. That he'd have such deep harmony and fellowship with his wife that they would be so aligned. Their hearts would be so knit together. They'd want what God wants. They'd be desperate for him, dependent on him. I want the men to stand, lifting their holy hands. And they're holy because they're free from anger and dissension. It's hard to hold a grudge when your hands are lifted before the Lord. It's hard to hang on to petty preferences and divisions when your hands are lifted before the Lord. And that's what Paul says the church must have. Men who are leading the church to pray, united prayer, no division, with what the Bible calls one heart, one mind, one accord. United, wanting what God wants I think about those college rowing teams that you sometimes see scooting across the river or the lake, each person rowing in perfect synchronization, the boat just gliding smoothly across. You know, a church at prayer or a family at prayer looks a lot like that. A church that doesn't pray, like six year olds trying to row one of those things. You can imagine the chaos. Everybody going at their own pace and in their own rhythm. One person rowing here and another person rowing there, and the thing just no, goes nowhere. But when our hearts are united in prayer, we are like this rowing crew that moves swiftly. There's a spiritual synergy and unity that happens when God's people pray. And so prayer must be a priority. I mean, we know it. We say it all the time. The family that prays together stays together. Why is that? Prayer unites our hearts for God. We want what you want, God, not what we want. We want what you want. And so because prayer expresses our dependency on God, and because prayer aligns our desires with God's desires, and because prayer unites our heart for God, prayer must be a priority in 2023. Our church in your family, and my family, and in our own personal lives. And so, since it's the first of the year, I want to kind of land the plane, and I want to give you some really practical challenges. I know your heart was gripped like mine. I'm about to get saved again up here, all right? So, um, you're going to need to respond in obedience to what God spoke to you. But here's some ideas. Number one, I challenge you. Prioritize personal daily prayer first thing every morning. Just like don't even let it, don't even let it pass by. It's not an option. First of all, pray. Before I brush my teeth, I'm gonna pray. Before I get dressed, I'm gonna pray. Before I drink my coffee, I'm gonna be in prayer. You can pray while you're making your coffee if necessary. 
First of all, I'm going to pray. Don't tell yourself you'll do it later. You won't do it later. If you don't do it first, and if you don't do it early, you won't do it at all. So personally, make private prayer your priority. Okay, maybe you got kids. Here's my challenge to you. Pray every day before school. Getting ready for the day. Hey, make prayer part of your routine. Hey, kids, let's get in here. Before we start our day, before we head off to school, let's pray. Pray for protection. God, protect my kids today. Not just from violence, but from every corrupting influence that's battling for their mind. Protect them, God. Surround them with friends who are going to love them, support them. Pray before meals. It's a good habit to get into. It's a natural break, and we're supposed to eat what God's given us with thanksgiving. So pray. Maybe even take turns as a family. Hey, tonight I pray, tomorrow you pray. And it's okay if the prayers are the same. You know, we have kind of a set prayer that we pray, Jesus in heaven, thank you for this food, thank you for my family, amen. Make the prayer simple, whatever you need to do, but pray as a family, prioritize that, okay? Number three, I'd say prioritize prayer before a big meeting. Right, you going into a meeting, first of all, pray. Before a hard conversation, first of all, pray. Before you go on a road trip, first of all, pray. Before you have a family budget meeting, first of all, pray. Whenever you find yourself not sure of what to do, first of all, pray. And I know it's going to be weird. We don't pray. That's why Paul has to tell us, pray. We're here on the first of the year laying our resolutions out from God, and we can just be honest. He knows. He hadn't heard from us as much as he'd like to. God, you know I'm not great at prayer. But I'm going to prioritize prayer this year in my family. I'm going to make it a priority every morning to be with you in prayer. And here's my commitment to you as pastor of this church. We will not go another Sunday without prioritizing prayer. It's going to be the first thing we do every Sunday morning. And here's how it's going to work. Every Sunday at 1035, I'm going to come up here on the stage. We're going to close the doors to the sanctuary. And I'm going to say something like this. God tells us in his word that we should pray. And so before we gather for worship, I want to invite anyone who's willing and able, especially our men, to come down here and join me at the front. Don't worry, I'm not going to make you lift your hands. I'm just going to ask you to kneel. We're going to kneel here. I'll kneel here on the stage. You kneel here in the floor. Kneel at your chair. And I'm going to say something like this. Hey, as we prepare our hearts for worship, why don't we, in the quiet of this moment, think back about our week? And let's confess to God any known sins privately in our hearts. Let's pray ourselves back into right relationship with God. And I'll give you a few quiet moments to do that. And then I'm going to say a prayer, asking God to be with us in our service, asking God to anoint our musicians and band. Asking God to be with me when I preach. Asking God to send his Holy Spirit to soften hard hearts, to awaken the dead, to call people to life as they respond to follow him. We'll conclude that prayer. We'll open the doors back up. We'll let the people who've gathered in the hallways come in. If you need to go to the bathroom, it'll be a great time for you to go ahead and do what you need to do. And we'll come back in here at 1045, and we'll start our worship service. And we're going to do that every Sunday in 2023. We're not going to stop doing it. If you get left out, 
you'll figure it out soon enough. 10.35, we pray. 10.45, we start church. Sunday school teachers, you may need to start meeting at 9.15 to make time for prayer. It's a priority. And we will not let another Sunday go by without praying together as a church. Number two, the first Monday of every month is going to be a day of fasting and prayer at CBC. Not tomorrow, but the first fun Monday of February. We've got to begin our first Monday prayer and fasting. We're going to have a prayer gathering right here in the sanctuary at 6 o'clock. It's not private prayer. It's corporate prayer. It'll be guided. We'll have an outline of things to pray for. You'll know what to pray. You don't have to come and figure it out. And I would challenge you to fast on that first Monday. Eat a big dinner Sunday night. And don't eat again if you're medically able until after prayer service on Monday night. Maybe you decide, hey, I'm not going to eat meat on Monday. Hey, that's good. It's between you and the Lord. Whatever you need to do to put yourself in a posture of dependence. That's what fasting is all about. I'm going to teach about fasting next Sunday morning right here at 930. If you've never fasted before, if you think it's weird, come at 930. We'll ask God to give us some clarity about it. And on the first Monday of February, I'm going to fast. And I'm going to come in here at 6 o'clock and pray with you. And then go over to the fellowship hall and eat some cheese and crackers. Fellowship is God's people. And that's my challenge to you, my commitment to you, that as pastor of this church, I know too much now. God's messed me up too bad. If I weren't to prioritize prayer in my ministry and in the ministry of our church, it'd be a sin. What about you? If you leave today and your personal prayer life doesn't change, what will that say about you? Will that say to God, God, I've heard what you said, but you know what? I can make it on my own. I'm fine to brace against the pressures of life without you. Will it say, no, God, I know what you want, but that's not what I want. And I'm going to get what I want however I can. Will it say, I know that, that you've put people around me that would help me pursue the life you've called me to live, but I'm fine to go it alone. Don't do it. Prioritize prayer. Let's ask God to help us.